Hello, it's Friday 3rd of June. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bowman and I will be discussing the current state of airlines, airports and aviation in Southeast Asia with Malaysia and Singapore-based aviation analyst Shukor Yusof. So, let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So as we enter the sixth month of 2022, Southeast Asia's travel and tourism sectors are showing signs of progress with the aviation sector right at the heart. But as we are seeing worldwide, the rebuilding of airline supply and passenger demand after the pandemic is accompanied by various operational challenges. Southeast Asia, as we know, is playing catch up due to the long pandemic travel restrictions. So what is the current state of play in the region's aviation sector? To help us find out, we're delighted to welcome expert analyst Shukor Yusof, founder and CEO of Malaysia and Singapore-based Endow Analytics. Shukor is a frequent media commentator and has been a clear voice of reason on aviation issues throughout the pandemic. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him back to the Southeast Asia Travel Show. So, Shukor, thanks so much for coming onto the show today. How are you doing and how are things in Johor right now? I'm good. Thanks, Gary. Um, hello, Hannah. It's good to be here. Things are a bit wet in Johor today, a bit rainy. Uh, thankfully, it's been very hot, as you know, over the last uh, week or so. So I'm, I'm happy to be here having spent a bit of time um, last month in Singapore. So good to be back uh, in Malaysia again. Great. So we've got so much to talk about, but I just wanted to get a couple of questions in just to talk a little bit about your career, Shukor. You, you studied in the UK at the universities of Brighton and Leeds, and after graduating, you became a business reporter. Then you moved pretty quickly into aviation reporting, and you've stayed in the aviation sector ever since. So, so what's the attraction about aviation and travel for you? Well, initially, it was money. <laughs> to, to be honest, I was a general reporter, then I became a sports reporter, which was the highlight of my career. In fact, I, I still look back at it fondly. It was a time when I, I got to meet Gary Lineker and John Barnes and, and all those slots. And, you know, I, it was very exciting because I'm very much into football. But one day a friend of mine uh, came up to me and said, have you seen the, an ad in the papers is looking for uh, a business journalist, not just a business journalist, but a journalist uh, to look into aircraft financing. And I said, well, I, I don't know what that, that's all about. So, I, you know, I mean, he said, well, maybe you should try. And I did. So that's how I got into the, you know, the, the business of writing about aircraft, not about aviation, but about aircraft financing, actually, which is about how aircraft are being financed and how airlines uh, structure and, and pay for those, um, for those planes. So that's how I got started into it. And then three years later, I got headhunted uh, for a job at Standard and Poor's. Um, and so, and they said, you know, I mean, we don't really do a lot of journalistic work. Uh, we do analysis. So in order to, to do that, you have to be licensed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And, and I got that and yeah, and, 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 you know, it moved from being a writer of um, aviation agrofinancing to um, analyzing the aviation market, airlines and airports specifically. That's super interesting. And so tell us a bit about your company, Endow Analytics. So why did you set that up and what kind of projects do you take on? Well, Endow Analytics uh, was named after 
a very interesting area in Johor, uh, the state where I was born. Uh, it's called the Endau Rompen Nature Reserve. It's huge, and, and Endau is a specific palm tree that's only found in that area. So when I started um, to think about having uh, a little setup of my own, I, I thought about the place that I, I pretty much spent a lot of time growing up with, and, and that was Endau. And that's how it was, it was, it was named. So we're not just aviation related. It is mostly aircraft aviation related, but we also do strategy. We do some economic stuff for um, sovereigns, in fact, um, meaning um, countries who have an interest in, in certain areas in this part of the world, in Southeast Asia especially, about how the economy is going, about geopolitics, uh, mixed with a little bit about the... Um, airline industry, you know, aviation industry. So those are the um, the mainstay, if you like, of, of the business. It's advisory, uh, it's bespoke consulting. So that segues perfectly into my next question, Shoko. So let's go back a little bit. History will show that since early 2020, since the pandemic started, the aviation, the airline sector has been heavily destabilized by the pandemic here in Southeast Asia and worldwide. Firstly, do you think that the airlines were sufficiently prepared? And secondly, was there much they could have done when governments decided to close international borders and then for so long? I think airlines generally, many of them were, in fact, all of them, I come to think of it, were grossly unprepared because I think, just to be honest, I think none of us were. I mean, it was the first time in, in you know, the people I've spoken to, you know, we've, we've never anticipated this. It's, it's, a, it's a black swan event. And so um, airlines were, were left in the lurch, uh, especially those, and coming to your second question, the ones that um, were poorly prepared are those who have never been able to sustain themselves to begin with, uh, even pre-pandemic. So they, were, they weren't very um, well capitalized. They weren't very well managed. And so when, when the borders were shut, I think they found themselves in, in big trouble, many of them. But again, it's it's a double-edged sword, you know. I, I think it's while it's it's fair to say they were unprepared and some of them were unable to sustain themselves to begin with. But when when governments made the move to to shut down, I think it it entirely destroyed the the aviation market. Nobody was prepared for that, and so uh, nothing could have been done because it was literally a global event and governments decided that was the best thing to do. So, I mean, you, you said the aviation market was destroyed. So during these kind of really dark days, it's odd, I suppose, because we haven't seen as many airline collapses or liquidations as perhaps we might have expected. Why was that? Well, primarily because governments decided to build them out, especially flag carriers, national airlines, which are a huge source of pride to, to many countries, especially in Southeast Asia, even when many understood or, or you know, were very unhappy that some of, many of these national airlines weren't performing well, um, but they were still latching to it as a, you know, because it's, it's, it's a flag carrier, so it flies the, the, the country's flag. And so many people were very much um, expecting governments to support them irrespective of whether that was the right thing to do or not. They weren't allowed to go to the wall, so to speak, because governments prevented them from doing so, uh, which I thought was 
was a huge mistake because uh, two years later, as we are today, I think it has distorted the landscape for the airline industry. Again, another perfect segue. So let's look at this year, Shukur. At the turn of 2022, countries in the region were starting to or were talking about reopening for travel. And this really raised expectations of recovery across the, the travel industry. So how would you look back over the, the first six months of this year in Southeast Asia? You know, what progress has been made in aviation terms? It's been a mixed bag, really. It's, it's haphazard. It varies from country to country. Uh, as you know, within ASEAN, uh, there are 10 member countries. Um, you've got Singapore, obviously, which is a triple A, a AAA, uh, rated country, uh, a first world country, in fact, compared to, uh, to the others in, in the block. Uh, and so they have done incredibly well to prepare for this. They, in fact, used the two years uh, to help Singapore Airlines, um, uh, you know, design a way to come out of, of, of the pandemic in a stronger and more solid foundation. Uh, whereas uh, some other uh, countries were really unprepared and were really unwilling to look at the different perspectives that they should have in, in an attempt to allow some form of balance to take place between um, opening up and, and about uh, controlling uh, all the health protocols that come with it. So I think it's unfortunate that we at, at this stage, uh, here we are in June, that we, there are still countries uh, within the region that still mandate for PCR tests, for example, 48 hours before a traveler arrives in, in, in those countries. And I think that's, that's one of the problems and a very serious issues, which I've had the, the opportunity to speak to some of the experts in the region and, and a lot of specialists in, in the business analysts and, and, and also people within the airline industry think that uh, there should no longer be uh, mandates to allow, for example, um, unvaccinated uh, people or perhaps people with just one dose of the vaccine, not to be able to fly, for example, because there are certain scientific data that points that flying in an airplane doesn't really, you know, people don't really get infected on board an aircraft. So you said that now there's these disparities between the regions and the different rate of recovery. How about the differences between LCCs and full service carriers? What are the biggest challenges facing you know, these airlines at the moment, are there different challenges that these two different sectors have to face? Well, I think uh, I'd like to think the, the biggest similarity that both have, whether you're a budget airline or you're a, a, a legacy carrier, is that you both need money and you need lots and lots of money. I mean, that by the airline business, by definition, is all about money. It's all about capital. It's about losing money and being able to sustain it until at some point, if you get lucky, you make some money. I, I do see budget carriers having had the upper hand in emerging from the crisis better prepared because LCCs by, by nature have been nimble, have been very quick to adapt to different situations. They're generally um, low cost, as, as, as the name suggests, so they, they don't really use up that much money as flag carriers do. Flag carriers are burdened by legacy issues, by um, unproductivity amongst uh, many of the, the staff that they have. They, they, they 
top-heavy, if you like. And one of the things that the crisis didn't do for some of these legacy carriers, flag carriers, is that they didn't use that opportunity, in, in my view, to whittle down or to shrink the number of staff. I mean, if you look at the ratio of workers to aircraft, for example, you see many of the Southeast Asian flag carriers is just completely out of whack uh, because there, there are far too many workers to one aircraft, for example. And that wasn't done. But for low-cost carriers like AirAsia, like Cebu Pacific, which, which I really like because they're very well managed, you know, they handle the finances really well. I think as, as we go ahead in the next six months and certainly into 2023, I think LCCs are going to be able to steer further ahead of, of uh, national airlines. That's an interesting analysis. I guess one of the things that has really been brought into focus as well in recent months, particularly after the Russia-Ukraine war, is this issue of supply of oil, supply of jet fuel. It's a dynamic issue around the world and it's pretty difficult to, to forecast. But what it has done, I guess, is brought into focus the issue of hedging for airlines. Can you explain to us why some airlines did and why some airlines didn't hedge fuel before the war? And what are their strategies right now? Well, I think hedging is one of those things, well, it's the only thing in the airline business that comes anywhere close to being a casino. Uh, it's, it's basically gambling. It's very heavy gambling because an airline needs a lot of capital, a lot of money to get into those collateral, those um, hedges with counterparties in, in the marketplace. So you're up against the house and the house always wins. So that, I'm afraid, is something that airlines really need to get a grip on, both LCCs and, and uh, it's usually the flag carriers that have done worse in hedging because flag carriers typically get a lot of money, a lot of free taxpayers' money, in fact, from, uh, from the government. And so they have uh, little or no accountability when they lose money hedging, and many of them have. Uh, and, and so... You know, it, it's it's a business that really ought to be outsourced, in my view, instead of allowing uh, managers, uh, people in management, to to grapple with every day. Because it you you can never beat the oil traders. You can't beat, you know, the 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 flow of the market, and you need to be on top of it twenty four seven. So airlines are not, or airline officials are not designed for that. So there, I think there's, there's an opportunity, there's a space for uh, third parties, operators to look not just at hedging. Hedging is a huge part because it's 30, 35% of an airline's operating expenses, but also uh, mitigating forex risk, which is a big issue in Southeast Asia today because uh, if you look at Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, the currencies, the local currencies are very, very weak and they're shrinking versus the USD. And that's a, it's going to be a huge problem because the airline business is denominated in, like oil, in USD. And when your revenue is in ringgit or in rupiah or, or, or in Thai baht, then you don't really have anything to fall back on other than hope for the best. And hoping for the best is not a very good thing in the industry because you're certainly going to get hit. That, that's super interesting, Shikhar. I'd not really thought about actually how the currency um, is also impacting, you know, and, and making things worse when it, when it comes to... To, to the fuel crisis as well. So as we've you know come to the close of Q1 or in Q2 now, we've started to see uh, Q1 results being released. Which airlines are doing well in the region or better in the region and, and which ones are under extra pressure right now? 
Well, I think to be very blunt, I think none of the airlines are doing well. I think they want us to believe they're doing well because they're coming from a very low base in the last two years. And so any numbers that come out uh, from the balance sheet looks exceptionally good. Of course, there are airlines like like Singapore Airlines uh, that are really doing well because they're probably the only airline in the region who've spent the last two years um, structurally reinventing or, or relooking and refocusing on what to do uh, for for the next uh, for the rest of the decade. In fact, and so they've they've looked at refleeting, they've looked at refinancing all aspects of the business. And so I think, uh, you know, as, as, as I've said repeatedly over the last few months, I think this is the airline, very few airlines, in fact, Singapore Airlines um, in the Gulf, it's Emirates, um, and perhaps Qatar as well, that are going to do well. And the other carriers are just passers by, really. I mean, they're just, it's just looking around and they don't really have a clue uh, what they they're expected to do things. So the results are going to, to manifest itself. I mean, many of the flag carriers are not listed in the region. Malaysia Airlines is not listed. So it's very difficult to understand, to comprehend, or in fact, to extract anything meaningful other than what is being propagated by management, which is uh, clearly to the interests of the company instead of to the interests of the country or the, or the citizens of the country. Uh, and then you have... Uh, Garuda, Thai Airways, for example, who are still mired in difficulty. It's, you know, we don't really know if that's going to be sorted out. Garuda especially, um, whose who's, um, debts and, and problems are very, very deep and very difficult to resolve. Uh, but we can only hope uh, for the best. But having said that, I, I, you know, my view has always been that in today's world, we don't really need a flag carrier. I think it can be outsourced. I think the markets will sort itself out if a if a carrier is allowed to to fail, uh, because you know somebody else will will come in and tap into the market and and it goes on. So uh, it, it isn't true as as what many people would say that you know if you take away um, X carrier from X country, then they lose the connectivity. It, it it's just not true because, for example, if you look at Malaysia, if you take away Malaysia Airlines, there's there's always AirAsia, and there are always other airlines that come in, can come into play, and and you know life goes on. Q2 will also be quite positive for some of the airlines, but I think let's not get too caught up with the numbers because the fundamentals are still very weak. But once we look at how uh, the summer season has come and gone, and then we are faced with reality again. Because I, there's still a lingering feeling this year, especially that you know something's lurking around the corner. If it's not fuel oil, it's not crude, and it could be geopolitics. It could be a natural disaster. I mean, the airline industry has always been facing those issues for the last hundred years. Yeah, that's a really good point because there are so many operational challenges up ahead. And as we look towards uh, the, 20, the second half of this year, you know, the, the tourism industry in particular, you, you start to see this forecasting, you start to see this positivity. Um, a little bit cautious, I'd say, even in Thailand, there, there is still cautious positivity. Um, but one of the issues that seems to, to strike me that is a great deal of confusion at the moment, Shukor, is, is flight prices. Now, we've discussed oil prices and we've discussed the impact that they can have, particularly on long-haul flights. But we are still seeing a lot of the LCCs offering these discounts, offering these kind of subscription packages, these ASEAN flight passes. 
Um, do you think in the second half of the year, as you said, there, there are some, some unknowns up ahead? You know, will airlines be able to, to rebuild confidence on price through the second half of this year? That's a very good question, Gary. I think what airlines are doing today is trying to ramp up as many passengers on board the aircraft as possible. And I think in a way, and this is not a, a criticism of what the airlines are doing, but you know, if, if I were in the same position, I'd do it myself. Because you see, as I've said earlier, a lot of pent-up demand, a lot of revenge travel. And in, in travel, as we know, in tourism in this part of the world, it's pretty much discretionary, as, as you will agree, I'm sure. Um, and, and by discretionary, I, I think, I mean, in the past two years, I mean, this, this I've looked at the, across different sectors and, and people are just not spending. I mean, they couldn't spend anything in the last two years other than being in front of, of the screen and looking at Zoom and, and all that. And, and so when, when the, the reopening of borders came about, a lot of people were, I mean, myself included, started looking at, you know, shall we go somewhere? I mean, we need to, you know. Uh, and and so the airlines noticed this and they have taken advantage of that also because the crude prices are also going through the roof so it's a combination of factors that force tickets to go where they are now and i think they will go higher i mean i have some anecdotal stories shared by some people who've, who've um, informed me for example that if you were to fly from singapore to germany for example in in this coming summer, economy tickets for one flight. I was told I was shown, in fact, a screenshot of it would cost you five thousand Singapore dollars. I, I suppose astonishing is not the word to describe. I think it's just surreal and quite offensive. I think <laughs> you know for 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 people who are, are flying in coach to be paying that much, but that's the price that one needs to be paying. And it's not specific to one particular aircraft out of Singapore, but it's the same with, with, with Qatar, with Emirates, for example. I mean, even medium haul fares to, to the Gulf, for example, from Singapore, from KLIA, would set you back for about, I don't know, maybe 1,500 pounds for economy. <laughs> which, which uh, And I think people are still not able to see the forest for the trees, so they, they're just interested in flying. But there will come a point when we're seeing an unbelievable inflation rising, and I don't think it will stop anywhere near where it is now. I think the trend is going upwards. We see weakness in no countries. There'll be a point within the next one or two quarters where people will start thinking, you know, I mean, it, is it between buying, you know, X amount of chicken to eat, or is it you know, I'm paying X amount to travel um, to Bangkok for the weekend, for example. I mean, those days when you can buy an air ticket on, on Scoot or AirAsia for the price of a, of a mug of beer, for example, those days are clearly over. Yeah, and it's going to be really interesting to see how that, you know, how that plays out in terms of recovery for tourism in the region. And I think this is not something that tourism boards have necessarily thought out either, right? When they're setting these super high targets of, uh, of inbound travelers, they're not really thinking about these these kind of factors and the short-term gains. Sure, things are increasing now, but is that going to continue? I think you make a, a really valid point there. 
I mean, one of the other big breaks in terms of tourism recovery here is China. What's your take on that? Is that going to be one of the biggest uh, factors to slow down recovery in Southeast Asia? Yes, it is. I think China is is key to the world economy, not just in aviation, not just for airlines, but or travel, but for everything. Um, it's all interrelated to what China is doing now uh, in the mainland and also what China plans to do. And that is the biggest um, dilemma, I think, for, for many airlines and many travel-related people, hotels, for example, in, 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 our, part, in our region. Because the Chinese have, for the last 10 years, been a, a huge factor in moving the economies of countries in Southeast Asia. Um, they travel not just by the millions, really. I mean, if you look at Malaysia, the, the, apart from Singaporeans who come in by cars and, and, and buses, but the Chinese come to Malaysia, and they were the second largest pre-pandemic um, to come to Malaysia because they come in, in, in plane loads and spend huge amounts of money. That, that's completely gone, and we don't know when that's going to come back. So uh, when you look at the overall dynamic the landscape of the industry it is i i you know i don't want to sound so extreme but i think the longer they're shut uh, i do not think there is any other country um, not even india with uh, an almost equal number of population but i think the indians do not have that sort of purchasing power if you like as the as the chinese had uh, to to turn a country's economy. And so it's a bit uh, difficult to to give a prognosis as long as there are little indications out of China. I mean, people that I know in China are very cagey or very reluctant to speak, even on the phone, about uh, what's exactly the thinking in, in, in that country. So we don't know. I mean, there, there are many question marks it's going to have a, a, an adverse effect on airlines because airlines are still very much dependent on, on Chinese travelers, as are the uh, travel and hospitality sectors. Uh, I would agree with everything you said there, uh, Shukor. Let's just go a little bit deep into India because you mentioned them there and you've just written a very, very good um, opinion piece, which we'll put a link up to in the show notes about the Indian air air industry and how that's starting to change. But it is very different to the Chinese travel airline industry. The, air, the Chinese airlines had these three big state-driven carriers, uh, and that's how they were able to push a lot of uh, capacity and frequency into our region. India is very different to that, isn't it? So uh, although a lot of the tourism boards are looking to India as the kind of savior market, the structure of the airline industry is just very, very different. Yeah, you're very right. I think that, well, they are different types of people. I mean, the Chinese are pretty much big spenders. The Indians, even though they like to travel, they're very careful with their money. And they don't spend as much, if you like, as the Chinese do, uh, wherever they are, whether it's in Europe, in, in the US, in North America, or, or in Southeast Asia. But having said that, India is a huge, huge market, one that is, it shouldn't be ignored. Because, I mean, if, if, if they get it right, and I think they will at some point, in the near future, because they have all these policies that are being put into place, they realize the, you know, the massive potentials that they hold, 
And with the right infrastructure, with the right people, they've got Campbell Wilson coming over there. I think that's wonderful because, you know, they, they do need a foreigner, in my view, to run the airlines because airlines are very uh, different kettle of fish compared to, um, as I've written in my, my piece, IT or any other job. It's just unique in the sense that a, a, a good airline CEO requires many, many things. A lot of variables come into place. You know, you need the people interest. You need you need to have a sense of financial acumen, a very strong sense of uh, technical ability as well. India has all that. I think it's, it's got the the market. It's got the demand. It's got uh, a very very hungry uh, middle class, even if if it's shrunk a bit. And so that is an area uh, where I see the next phase of growth. I think they would do well to exploit the continual, continuous uh, shutdown of China and use this opportunity for the next perhaps six months to a year um, to capitalize on, to exploit it and to engage with Southeast Asia because there's a, a huge Indian diaspora in Southeast Asia and, and also a lot of Indians stop by Singapore, for example, on their way to the west coast of the US. So that are plenty of opportunity. And I think... Here, uh, you know, the airline business is linked to many parts of, 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 of the economy. So, yes, I, I do think that they have the ability, uh, notwithstanding when we can see China re-emerging again. But, uh, and I do see it, in fact, um, that they're making a concerted effort to not just to revive the airlines and, and the airports in that country, but also to... They've shown a determination that I've not seen before in in, in doing things to um, expand their influence throughout the region. It's fascinating. So let's take it back to Southeast Asia. And over the past couple of years of the pandemic, we've actually seen a few new airlines emerging, um, which perhaps not what people might have expected. So in Malaysia, we've seen SKS Airways. Uh, we've had Viet Travel Airlines in Vietnam, super Airjet, Superjet Air, I forget which way around it is in Indonesia. Um, is now a good time to start an airline? Uh, it is, and maybe it's not. I mean, it, it, it depends on how, if you see the glass half full or half empty. I, I tend to think that, you know, a lot of, it's like this. I, a lot of um, rich people who get into the business, in the airline business, think they can reinvent the wheel. Um, well, we know better, they, they can't. Um, nobody can. Um, so why are people getting into the airline industry and throwing millions of money? Because it's an ego trip, essentially. Because if you look at the data, you look at the economics economics of it in Malaysia, for example, we've seen uh, SKS Airways, we've got My Airline, perhaps even another one in the works, I'm told. There, there is really no justification to have additional airlines. One, because uh, the market was in overcapacity to begin with pre-pandemic. You know, you've got three airlines: AirAsia, Malaysia Airlines, and, Mal- and Malindo or Batik, as it is known now. Um, and that was already, you know, there, there, there was intense com- competition for that. So I don't know, for example, where my airline with the uh, uh, plan ten or twenty A three twenties are going to fly within the region. Or perhaps they're going international. I don't know. I mean, um, SKS too. So in, in Indonesia, I think that you have a fighting chance if you're a new setup because it's, 
it's 300 million people. It's got a vast archipelago. People need to fly from one place to another. And so that's perhaps the only place in Southeast Asia where startups have a good chance of of really uh, doing well because the incumbents like Garuda, like Citilink are doing a rather quite a rubbish job of, of ferrying people around the country. And so we need startups to take over. I mean, you've got, as you said, Hannah, um, Super Air Jet, which is uh, an offshoot of Lion Air, uh, Fly Indo, which is another one of those. And I think those guys will do well because they've, they've, they, they've come from Lion Air, which is, which is a, a very good airline as far as fares are concerned in Indonesia. And that's the only thing people look at in Indonesia. If it's cheap, I'll fly. Um, but but elsewhere in the region, I, I think airlines are, are not the, something that you come in and, you know, unless you're willing to use your pants and everything you have on your body, then, you know, go for it. But yes, uh, aircraft are cheap right now and lessors are very eager to, to place aircraft, uh, given that the market is shut in Russia, given that a lot of airlines during the pandemic were unable to, to pay their rentals. So they're quite a lot of air- aircraft in the marketplace that are going for a song. And if you got a 50 or, or even if you have 10 million, I think, you know, you can pretty well start an airline in any part of Southeast Asia today, but that's the wrong move. Um, I think you'd be better off buying uh, shares in, in, in solar companies, for example, or, or renewables than in airlines. Let's talk about um, aviation infrastructure and airports, because this is a huge issue worldwide where travel flows are starting to grow quite quickly. Europe is a very good case in, in point. I was in the UK recently, and there's a lot of problems at airports, and it's mostly around staffing and resources, lots of queues, flights being cancelled, that kind of thing. We haven't got to that point yet in Southeast Asia, but are airports in the region prepared to carry a sharp increase of international passengers if that does start to happen? No, they're not. And surprisingly, we've seen even an established airport like Changi struggling, at least in the first two months of the reopening of of the borders in Singapore. And again, you know, I've heard uh, quite horror stories about passengers having to wait 45 minutes, 50 minutes for their baggage to clear at Changi, which which was unheard of before. And and likewise, in other parts of uh, Southeast Asia, if Changi is struggling, and they're struggling because a lot of people were laid off, and people who were in the airline industry who were laid off in the last two years, not just in Singapore, but elsewhere in the region, are reluctant to go back to, indus- to, to the industry because they've had a very bad experience uh, with COVID. And, you know, some of them have very successfully gone on to other uh, different industries. And, you know, they, they don't see that attraction with air travel, with working at airports and, and taking selfies in front of aircraft. That it no longer holds, I think. I think people are more pragmatic now because they want jobs that could guarantee them, you know, money at the end of the month during a pandemic during a crisis, and they've seen how badly affected the aviation industry was. So airlines struggle in the sense that you know they they they're finding people hard to to come and work for them again. Not uh, even in in KL in Bangkok, I'm told, and in, and in Indonesia, I mean you don't take just ordinary people to come. You need people with certain sort of experience to come and work uh, at airports, obviously. And so I think uh, with with and 
you know, the amount of money that governments are putting into airports today are also pitiful compared to what they've spent on other um, nonsensical infrastructures for the countries, for example. So, yeah, I think, you know, it, there must be a clear understanding that the airline airport is in the business of connectivity and, you know, each country needs a, a reliable airport, a functioning airport, um, airports uh, that run 24-7. And so there, there must be a certain sizable amount of, of budget allocated for it. So looking back then across the last two and a half years of the pandemic, what do you see as the key lessons for airlines, for airports, even for aviation regulators? I think one of the things that you take into account over the last few years, if we reflect and we're honest to ourselves, is that, you know, take nothing for granted. I think one of the things pre-pandemic people, as I've said earlier, were getting used to flying uh, to regional destinations or, or within between countries for very cheaply for $20, $30, for example. And, and those days are over. And also, I think, you know, with, with, with COVID, with the pandemic, I think that the lesson is that you, no matter how able and agile and aggressive you are, you are literally at the mercy of nature. And there's nothing much you can do. Well, there is, in fact, you, you can do. You can be... You can always, you know, try to mitigate uh, the, the business by being well prepared. I think money is the essence of it. So if you're very well capitalized, then you have a far better chance of surviving any crisis. But having said that, I mean, when you look at Singapore Airlines, they were one of the best capitalized carriers in the world pre-COVID, and they have raised or they were given money to the tune of something like twenty or twenty-one billion. Singapore dollars with the help of Tomasic. So there's no guarantee, even if you're a strong carrier, best managed that you're able to make it through a, a really disastrous crisis like the one we've just experienced. And there's no guarantee. I think, but the one area which I think that could help any airline or any company for that matter are good people, people who are calm, competent, and not corrupted and who are able to distinguish and to follow through on basic uh, operational procedures, for example. The airline industry was missing that for many airlines, for many parts of the, of the airline aviation ecosystem, whether it's airports, airlines, or supply chains. And so I think in the run-up to the rest of the second half of this year, we, we will unfortunately see all these come up and and you know there's been a lag so i think you know there'll be a, some inflection point where the us dollar is just you know going ballistic oil prices are going ballistic and then there's not very much that you can maneuver from and then that's where we see unfortunately collapses by in in, in many parts of the world and I, I, I do think that's going to happen. Shukor, that's a hugely realistic view. Thank you so much for your insights today. Let's just finish up on a personal note. Are you going to be heading back into the skies anytime soon? Are there any uh, places that you're looking to visit? That's a, a great question. I think in the last two years, what it's done to me is to uh, relook at the, the amount of air travel that I've taken. So I've become more aware of sustainability, about my own carbon footprint and all that. So I've 
I've uh, decided I, I'd like to take spend more time on trains. In fact, <laughs> um, I've always been been a big fan of trains. When I lived as a student in in the UK, I used to do interrailing to Europe three or four times then um, during the, the holidays. And I look back at, at fondly, and then you know I, I you know air travel while it's still convenient and relatively inexpensive today. I think that's something you know when we look at sustainability on all the climate change that we're experiencing you know there's a lot to digest and even though it's just one person if it's you it's me it's hannah that we can still do something about it and so i'll i'll, I'll fly if, if i need to but only very selectively i guess i think that's a great take i think a lot of people are feeling very similarly now i think coming out of the pandemic so that brings us to a close of our special Southeast Asian Airlines and Aviation edition. Thank you so much to Shuko for his very revealing insights. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, don't forget to send us your thoughts and comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, the seasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every episode, including this one, on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please do remember that if you tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, if you could give us a quick rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We look forward to talking to you then. 